you please to turn to Habakkuk in chapter 3. Habakkuk in chapter 3. I want to read this chapter. I'm only going to really comment at any length on the first couple of verses. This will take us through next Sunday as, as well. But I want to read all of this so that you can get uh, a glimpse of what we will talk about today and where we're certainly headed for next, for next Sunday. Habakkuk in chapter 3. As you find that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word. I pray that you would help us uh, to listen, to hear, to understand. Father, we give you thanks for this, your word, and we pray that we would grant it the reverence, the attention, the trust that it deserves. And so, Father, I pray, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk in chapter 3 and verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to uh, Sigionath. O Lord, I've heard the reports of you and your work. O Lord, I, do I fear in the midst of the years revive it, in the midst of the years make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan, in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging rivers swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You um, threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the folds and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. As you know, we've been in this uh, 
book of Habakkuk for the last few weeks. For those of you who are new, the reason that I take this up on this particular Sunday is because that's sort of what we do around here. We just sort of take up the next verse so that God sets the agenda for our worship times. And though this be the season of Advent, I think we can see even here that a prayer, part of this prayer of Habakkuk is really answered and answered in its fullness in the coming of our Lord Jesus. So we'll await that conclusion in just a little while. But we know from this prophet Habakkuk that we've come really to the point that we've been waiting for. In chapter 2 and verse 1, Habakkuk says this, I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look to see what he will say to me. And so Habakkuk's waiting to hear from God. And in chapter 2, God responds to Habakkuk. And then he goes on in this particular verse in 2.1 and he says, And what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is Habakkuk's answer to God's response to his questions, to his perplexity, to his complaints. This in chapter 3, this is, this is what in a sense we've been waiting for, asking the question, uh, what is it that, 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 that Habakkuk's going to say? How is he going to respond to what God says to him because we realize that the message of this prophecy isn't simply what God says to Habakkuk but also what he says in return and also in the effect that what God says on Habakkuk has on him what we're hearing what we're seeing in this whole thing is what God says Habakkuk's response and the transformation that takes place in Habakkuk during that because you see the questions that Habakkuk asks are the same ones that we often find ourselves asking as well you remember quick brief review of the history of the moment you remember Habakkuk is a prophet in Judah ancient Israel split northern kingdom southern kingdom northern kingdom was destroyed seven in the eighth century BC if you will and um now we're coming, we're about 600-ish B.C. And this word uh, of Habakkuk goes to God, this complaint, if you will, because what he sees in ancient Judah seems not to correspond with what he knows to be true about God's character and about God's promises for the people. Because what he sees is, is, is not what he expects to see. What he sees is violence uh, iniquities, as he put it, all kinds of sins, so the same kinds of sins that you and I see in our day and have been involved in and all of that. He sees that in the midst of ancient Judah. But he, but he knows God's holiness. And he wonders, God, how can you remain silent and inactive in the midst of this situation? There had been great revival in ancient Judah, as we remember through uh, King Josiah. There had been great revival that Habakkuk had seen. He had seen what it was like when a group of people, when a community of people, when the people of God were obedient to God and joyfully followed after him. He had seen all of that. And, and that, after Josiah's demise, that had left. And now the people were back to their ways of ungodliness and worshiping other gods. And, 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 and thus it had shown itself in this violence and, and greed and, and, and all of that. So... Habakkuk saying, God, why don't you say something? Why don't you do something? And God answers Habakkuk. And he says, well, I'm not silent. I really am doing something. And here's what I'm going to do. There's this group of godless 
ruthless people, this nation called the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and they're on their way, and they're marching towards you, and as you know, they're destroying every nation in their path, and so they're moving towards Jerusalem, and they will come here, and they'll wreak havoc here, as they've done in all the other nations. Now, Habakkuk hears that, and sort of, I suppose, scratches his head and says, hmm, I probably shouldn't have asked. He doesn't expect that either, and you know, he knows in a sense that the people deserve judgment, the people deserve discipline. He understands the covenant nature of God's promises in the old covenant. He understands that there was blessing for believing and following after God, but curses would come because of disbelief and not following after God, and the people were not believing, not following after God. So you can understand that something like this could well come. But he didn't understand how it come through this ruthless, godless nation. Why God would use a people more godless, more unrighteous than Judah itself. But even conceding that, he says, okay, I understand that part of it, but I don't understand this part of it. And so now he waits upon God and he says, God, speak to me. I'll wait for your answer. And then I'll wait for what I'm going to say as well. And God speaks to Habakkuk. And he says to them about the Babylonians that, yes, you understand them rightly. They're puffed up and they're arrogant. And they will ultimately be judged. So the end of chapter 2 is, is about that judgment. But he says to you, Habakkuk, and to those like you, to ones who would be numbered among the righteous, the righteous will live by his faith. Uh, by faith in the sense that righteousness comes by faith as it did, as it did for Abraham, when the scripture says that Abraham, patriarch of all, Abraham believed God and his faith, it was counted or credited or considered as righteousness. So Abraham didn't come into this relationship with God because of his own holiness and righteousness, but he came by faith trusting in God. And God therefore counted that, counted him as righteous. That was a righteousness that was granted by way of grace. We know we too come to God in the same way. We come by his righteousness given to us on the basis of the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't because of our own inherent goodness that God receives us, that God accepts us, but it's because of the goodness and the rightness and the righteousness of Christ. In trusting in him, that righteousness of Christ is given to us. We're covered with it. The technical term is that we're imputed This righteousness is imputed to us. So the righteous will live by faith. We receive righteousness by faith. And then we live by faith. Regardless of what we see, we live trusting in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We trust him. We live not by sight, but by faith. And so God is saying to Habakkuk, I know what you see. Trust me. And he says the Babylonians will not be exalted in the end because God says in chapter 2 and verse 14, for the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So he's saying that's the ultimate plan. That's ultimately what's going to take place. I know at the moment what you see exalted is godlessness and violence and greed and self-sufficiency and trusting in own, one's own power, you see, that's what you see. That's what seems to be exalted at the moment. But God says, it will not be exalted forever because I will be exalted because the, my, the knowledge of my glory 
will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So look for that. That's what will take place. That's the plan of all things. And then at the very end of that time, God speaks of himself as one who is in his temple. He says, I'm in my temple. Let all the earth keep silence before me. That is in chapter 2 and verse 20. And that's what leads. But God is saying, trust me. You think I'm silent? I'm not. You think I'm inactive? I'm not. I'm at work. Can't see it because I'm working through this group of ruthless, godless people called the Babylonians and they're coming through. But, but trust me. And so now we're set up for Habakkuk's response. Now you would think after God has just said, but the Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence before him, that Habakkuk would say nothing. I mean, what, what is there really to say? Uh, but when the scripture says that all the earth keeps silence before God, it doesn't mean say nothing. It means silence in a particular way. Silence from what Habakkuk had been doing, which had been complaining, which had been questioning, which had been doubting the very presence, the very care, the very compassion, the very honor, the very integrity of God. And so he does speak, but when he speaks now, it's very different than when he first spoke. He first spoke saying, well, God, 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 what's going on here? And now as he speaks, he speaks humbly by way of a prayer. And it is a prayer. Verse 1 says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the um, Sigionoth. And no one really knows what a Sigionoth is, by the way. That's why it's just transliterated from the Hebrew That isn't an English word. That's just a transliteration of a Hebrew word uh, because nobody knows quite what that means. It's most likely some sort of either musical melody or musical instrument. It's some instruction to the, to, as he puts it at the end, the choir master. It's something because he's going to sing this. This isn't just a prayer that he says. This is something well thought out. This is something by way of poem. This is something uh, that's going to be sung. And so this prayer is going to be sung to God. And and so that's how he responds to God by putting together uh, this song. And so there's instructions to the to the choir master on on how it's uh, how it's to be to be sung. But we pick it up really in verse two. And notice uh, Habakkuk's attitude. He says, "O Lord." I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. So he, he begins, and he begins by, by praying. That's his response. So after God comes to him and says, Habakkuk, the righteous will live by his faith, his response is very different than his original questions because now his response has this sense of humility because he's begun to think who God really is, as we've talked about so many times, as we come before the Lord, as we live our lives, it really is about where we put our eyes. It's really the focus of our attention. Is it upon him or is it upon us? And for Habakkuk in the beginning, it was upon himself. He was wondering, God, you're not shaping up the way I thought you should shape up. You're not doing this the way I thought you should be doing. God, God, God I would expect... 
that you should bring revival as you did during the days of Josiah. And I would expect that you would bring it in the same way. So, so why aren't you doing that? I don't get it. I don't see you here. I don't understand why you're doing what you're doing the way you're doing it. In fact, it seems to me you're not doing anything. It seems to me you're not saying anything. And that I just simply don't get. But now he comes and rather than speaking of God's inactivity or silence, he says to God, all right, I've heard the report of you. In fact, as we begin in verse 3, and I won't do this in much detail at all, as he works through um, the end of chapter 3 from verses 3 to, to 15, he, he, he rehearses really in a poetic way, so it's not chronological, it's not even necessarily really clear to us exactly what he's getting at, but he's, he's referring to God's work throughout ancient Israel to deliver his people. Uh, notice, God came from Taman and from the Holy, uh, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the mountains, and the earth was full of His praise. Meaning, God came to deliver His people, and he, and he begins to speak of the Exodus, the time when the Israelites were in Egypt, and how they were delivered out of Egypt, and 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 He and He speaks to God about pestilence and the plagues and and how God measured the earth and shook the nations and and how it was that the Israelites were able to leave Egypt in the way that they did and plundered the Egyptians and everyone was healed as they as they left and and how it is that God worked and and there was this great magnificent cloud and there was this pillar of fire and how the nations around would tremble as they came uh, here's reference to entering into the land and 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 certainly what took place in Midian. Uh, he speaks of, of God's wrath, if you will, as it appeared against the, the rivers. And, and we know what happened at the Red Sea and later at the Jordan as they entered into the land of promise and how, how God defended the people and how God took them into the land and, and gave them uh, the land, uh, how the sun and moon stood still during the days of, of Joshua and all of that. And you get this great sense that God was really active and God was really fighting for his people. Because we have to understand that this, this, this word that we have from God, this relationship that we have from, with him is more than simply talk. It's God at work. God's doing something. It isn't that he's just simply speaking to us. But God is at work doing something. He says that all of history exists for his glory. All of history exists so that his, the knowledge of his greatness can cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He, it isn't just in what he says. It's in what he's doing. We understand that in the context of, of our faith, in the context of being followers of Christ. Because Christianity, first and foremost, isn't simply a philosophy of life. It isn't just simply an understanding of the way that we're to live. It's about what God did. He acted. He did something in history. Something that we could not do for ourselves. Or if we did it, at least in part, it would be our demise, which means he came to atone for our sins. He did something. Uh, that's what it's really about for us. Not only what God has said, it explains what he did. So Habakkuk was right in order to think about activity of God. God, you should be doing something here. And God said, I have been. You've just been missing it. You haven't seen it. And so he goes back and he rehearses the history of his people and he realizes the activity, the work of God. And now what concerns Habakkuk more than anything else, more than his comfort, more than his understanding, is the work of God. 
And so he says this, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. Do I fear that as I stand in reverence and awe of all that you have done, all right, I see that you are at work. No longer is he uh, puffed up as even the Babylonians were. Not on, not, not, no longer does he think he can just stand in the very presence of God and, and, and quiz God. He's now come to that point of saying, all right, I've heard the report of your work. And he begins to pray that God would revive his work. Now by that he meant, I want your work to live. What's most important in all of this, God, isn't my comfort. What works, what's most important in all of this, God, isn't even my understanding. What's most important in all of this, God, is that you work. That your work lives. That you bring a revival in this place. However it is that you decide, however it is that you think right, to do that. Because you see, this very work of God, as Habakkuk would know it, as he rehearsed the plan of God, as he rehearsed what God had done in the context of the lives of his people, this work of God is that work of salvation. We saw it in ancient Israel. We saw it as as God initially makes makes a promise even before ancient Israel comes into existence. We see it in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We, we see it where this promise comes where God says, I'm going to bring one from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He'll be the one who will be your champion. This is the one who will make everything right. And then we see that as it plays out. There's promises to this man, Abraham, who becomes Abraham. And these promises are great promises. He says, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. But not only that, that you will have descendants. You'll have descendants so numerous they can't be counted. He says to Abraham, look at the sky, count the stars. And Abraham says, I can't count the stars. That's crazy. God says, that's my point. You're going to have descendants like that. Not only just physical descendants, Abraham, but you're going to have spiritual descendants. You're going to have descendants who are like you, that is, descendants who believe in me. That's your true heritage. Those are the descendants I'm speaking of. Those who come as you've come. Those who come by faith. Those I count righteous on the basis, not of their own goodness, but on the basis of their faith. And and Abraham would know that. And then we see that being played out. We see it being played out through the Exodus. You have this enslaved people who are delivered from there by God. They come to Mount Sinai. They're they're made a people. They're given a law. They're to follow after God. And all of that is by his grace. They didn't deserve any of that. And now they come and God says, I will rule over you and I'll be present with you. And he sets up this wonderful system for them where there are priests who intercede, where there's a place to go to worship in a tabernacle, later temple, where there's atonement being made for their sin through the sacrifice of animals. That is, that God in his grace isn't taking his wrath out upon them, but rather upon these animals. And so he's saying, I'll I'll take that for now. And so there is this, this, this way of being in the very presence of God. And there are kings who are on behalf of God or to rule over the people. There are prophets who come to, to speak the very truth of God to them. God is saying, I live among you. That's my work. And all the nations will see this and that will reveal my glory. Well, of course, the people disobeyed and didn't follow after God. Habakkuk was experiencing that in the community in which he lived in Jerusalem in those days. And now, 
He's saying to God, revive that work. What really matters, no matter if the Babylonians come or don't come, no matter if it's suffering or not suffering, no matter if things are good or if things are bad, he's saying what's most important, God, is that you revive that work. Now, he knew exactly what he was praying because God had given him a glimpse into how that was going to come. And so in verse 16 of chapter 3, in a very realistic way, he says this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. He says, I know who you are, God. And I know what you're going to bring. And as a human being, I'm afraid. But then he goes, yet, I will quietly, that little expression, quietly, I will be still and know that you're God, that you will be exalted among the nations. I know what's coming. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Now you notice that he went all the way from A to Z on that one. He said, I know they're coming to us. I'll suck in deep there, but I know a day is going to come when you'll be exalted because they too will be judged. So I see it all the way, God. My, my faith covers the whole time, the whole event in all of this. I wonder... Just in that. How it is that we pray. I know how I pray. And that's why this little sentence is so convicting to me. I know that when trouble starts to come, I normally first pray that trouble not come. And then when it's upon me, I pray that it really doesn't hurt that bad. And then... I pray that if it takes anything away, that whatever it takes away will be restored quickly so that my life isn't too interrupted by this particular scene, this particular event. Now, in one sense, that's not a bad thing to pray. We're we're encouraged by God to pray for his care and compassion. And he does promise to care for us and to provide for us. And so that's that's all right. That's good. But, 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 But that's ultimately my primary and sometimes exclusive focus. Whereas we need to be praying, I need to be praying, God, whatever it takes, whatever it is that you're going to do in the midst of this, I'll quietly wait to see your glory. I'll quietly wait because what's really important is that you use this time, you use this event, you use this suffering, you use this difficulty to bring your work to life. That work of purifying me. That work of purifying us. That work of drawing people to yourself. That work of showing that you are the God without whom we cannot live. That's what's important in the midst of all of this. I think about... My praying, our praying after 9-11, for instance. And, and of course, we prayed some right things during that time. There were people suffering. We prayed for them, that God would help them. Uh, we were afraid. We prayed that God would protect us. There was an injustice done. We prayed that God would bring justice in the midst of that. And for a while, we prayed that, 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 that God would use that circumstance to revive his work. But, but, but some, it didn't last very long, that prayer. We pretty soon became accustomed and had a feeling of safety in all of the things that we were doing to keep ourselves safe. 
all of the airport things and, and all of the homeland security and all that good stuff. We should, I suppose, be doing all of that. But very quickly, we, we became very comfortable in all that. And, and now we really, really don't think about that as a way for God to revive his work. I think about the present moment in which we live in this recession as it's coming. And I wonder how it is that we're praying. I know how I've been praying until I started reading this. Um, you know, God, it's tough. Could you restore our retirement funds quickly? Could you make the value of our homes go back up to where they were? Could you make sure that we don't lose our jobs, that everything will be fine and dandy? I really don't want to have to deal with this. I don't want to have to worry about this. I don't want to be concerned about this. It's an invasion on my life. And you know, God, we're not as bad as those other countries, are we? And so why is it that this should be hitting us? Now, some of that's probably good to pray. We need to pray for those who are suffering, those who are finding life difficult because of the times in which we live. We want people to be employed. We want people to have satisfying work. We want people to have work that supplies their needs and all of that. But I get the sense that Habakkuk would have started his praying with God, use this as a time to purge and purify. God, use this as a time to bring people to yourself. God, God, use this so that your work would be seen. God, use this so that you would be glorified in our midst. Somehow, I think that if we can have this nice little balance or what we think is a nice little balance between God purifying and purging us marginally and and life being pretty easy to live, that we would take that over a radical move of God in order to blow our socks off so that we walk with him. And I think if we think about having a radical work of God that blows our socks off to where we're purged and purified, we stand with a back and say, I hear and my body tremble. And God says, trust me. I wonder about all of those longings of our hearts that seem to go unsatisfied that can be a preoccupation with our lives in terms of our own marriage situation, relationships that we have, employment situations that we have, perhaps disappointments that we have in life of things that we haven't been able to do or see or achieve uh, perhaps loneliness that we feel, these, these things that crowd in around us and seem to be the biggest things in our lives and big things they are. It might be suffering that we experience and, and many experience on, on a daily kind of basis and we pray for that to be relieved and be taken care of and yet I wonder, do we pray in the midst of that, God, make your work live. God, what I'm really concerned about is that your work of sanctifying me. God, your work of bringing other people to yourself. God, make sure that above everything else that continues. That's the most important thing. You get the sense that Habakkuk moved from this self-awareness, this self-concern about God, I'm confused, to okay God, it's not about me, it's about you. So would you please move and work? Make sure that your work continues. Please revive all of that. Bring that to our land. But then you'll notice this little last expression in verse 2. Habakkuk says, In wrath remember mercy. Now that would be known in the people of God in those days as, as a right prayer. First of all, 
they would understand the wrath, the judgment of God. They knew the covenant of God. They knew the blessings and the curses. They knew that they were to be a blessed people if they followed after God, if they trusted in him and walked with him. They knew the curses that were to come very justly and righteously if they didn't, if they didn't believe God and didn't walk after his ways. Habakkuk would know they hadn't been so judgment, discipline, wrath of God. Surely to come he would understand that. But he also knew and I don't mean this flippantly, the magic words with God. He knew that in the covenant of God, mercy was the big word. He knew that God had promised to be merciful to his people, so he cries out for God's mercy. Mercy, God, see us in our misery. God, come to us as you've promised. God, restore to us and bless us and bring us to yourself. In Psalm 85, uh, is another song that was written by the sons of Korah. It goes like this. I won't sing it. I'll just read it. Psalm 85, verse 1. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. That could be describing a number of times in the history between God and his people. And so the psalmist's Pray again, restore us, that is revive us, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Notice that in the appeal, it's an appeal to mercy. It is an appeal to to justice it isn't an appeal to give us what we deserve it's an appeal to the very heart the very nature of God be merciful to us because they would know that this mercy of God is what we call a sovereign mercy it's given not on the basis of our goodness but on the basis of God's very character of who he is you remember there was a time when Moses had asked to see God's glory and God said to Moses, you can't see it in all of its glory, so I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll go before you, cover your eyes, you can see my back. And here's how God describes that scene. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious And I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is the very sovereign mercy of God. It's given as he determines, as he decides. But but it's his very nature to be merciful. So on the basis of this covenant, on the basis of this promise of God, Habakkuk appeals. And he says, I know that the judgment is going to come. But be merciful in the midst of that. Restore us. Revive us now. That prayer of Habakkuk was answered in measure uh, because while the Babylonians were coming and would come, and while the Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem and the people would be exiled, which would be something that you and I can't even imagine. Some 
in Judah would have been killed and others then would have been taken from their families and from their homes and, and displaced, taken to a land that was completely different from the land in which they knew, a language, a culture, very different. It would be like if, if, if someone invaded Lawrence, Kansas, picked us up and took us to Columbia, Missouri. No, that isn't it. I'm sorry. Took us to Bangladesh, took us to somewhere with a different language and a different culture, someplace that we, we knew not of at all and were not known and nobody really cared about us. And the purpose was to destroy us, really, to destroy our culture, to destroy our faith. And, and that was the sense that, 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 that Habakkuk knew was coming and did come. But, but as God prophesied through other prophets, a day would come when the people would return to Jerusalem, and they did. The Babylonians were destroyed. There was a decree that went out the very providence of God where these people from Judah could come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in a certain measure, rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, and the glory of the Lord in some sense returned there. And so, yes, judgment did come, but, but the mercy of God was revealed and shown. And thus Habakkuk's prayer and judgment and your wrath, remember mercy. But there's a bigger sense in which God remembered mercy in the midst of wrath. To answer really that prayer and the prayer of the prophets and the prayer of others and the promise of God. You remember there was a night in history when our Lord Jesus was with his disciples and after giving thanks, he took the bread that was there and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup And after giving thanks again, he gave this cup to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle tells us that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? At least this, in God's wrath, he remembered mercy. In fact, he continues to remember mercy because our Lord Jesus continues to live. Now, in his wrath, that is, in his judgment, in his righteous judgment against our sin, God meted that judgment out upon his own son. Judgment happened. There was a a day in history where this God-man Jesus died and when he did the scripture tells us that he took upon himself the sin of sinners and there he was in the midst of that experiencing eternal condemnation there was a moment in that day when he turned to his father and he said you've forsaken me and that experience of eternal hell of eternal condemnation the very wrath of God upon Jesus He had anticipated that, just like Habakkuk anticipated the Babylonians coming. Jesus had anticipated that in the Garden of Gethsemane, so much so that he sweated drops of blood even as he prayed. He knew what was to come, and he knew more than anyone that it wasn't simply the physical agony of that 
moment of the beatings and even the physical agony of the cross. It wasn't just the embarrassment of the moment of being falsely accused and hung on a tree and all of that and being considered as a criminal. It wasn't simply that. It was being forsaken by his father. He knew what was to come. It was the very wrath of God. And like a reasonable human being who understood that, he trembled before it, Jesus did. But like Habakkuk said, revive your work. That's what's important. Not my will, not not my moment, not how I feel, my comfort, but God, revive your work. Do it. That's what's important here. Your will, not mine. Jesus went to the cross, took the very wrath of God so that in God's wrath he could remember mercy to you and me to others throughout history who believe in him. Those who come by faith, thus righteousness given. Those who come by faith, thus sins forgiven. Those who come by faith to live, thus walk, live in the very presence of God. And God continues to remember his mercy. We continue to call upon his mercy. And we know he'll never forget that mercy because the Lord Jesus lives and he lives at the right hand of the Father to continue to intercede for us. So at every moment in time, mercy in glory is remembered. Judgment has come for those who will believe. Mercy reigns. Thus we live by faith righteous. We live in the very mercy of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us. That you would grant to us a deep sense of understanding, a deep awareness, a deep embrace of your mercy. Judgment has fallen upon Jesus so that your very people, the very ones you gave to him, those who would believe, now live in that mercy. We give you thanks for forgiveness of sins. We give you thanks for your very presence among us. Now, Father, I pray that you would take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that we meet with our Lord Jesus as he's spiritually present here. And even as we do, that our faith would increase as we come to him by faith. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll notice in your worship bulletin this morning a song. And I'd like us to sing it as a time of confession as we come before God as a time of calling upon as a time of calling upon his mercy it comes from psalm 51 you notice you know that psalm is one of david coming to god for mercy appealing on the covenant the mercy of god that he would be forgiven his sins restored that god's work in his life and thus then throughout the kingdom would go on Let us sing that together.
Remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. Those who believe and receive our Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. And his desire to live, therefore, as one who lives by faith, not by sight. He lives by faith, not in one's own merit, but faith only in the work of 
Christ and in him. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left, these down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you eat it, let this go off in your head. In his wrath, he has remembered mercy. Please come. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray for us, for me, that first, our primary concern is not ourselves, but your glory. Our primary concern is not our comfort, but that your work live. That our primary concern is not our prosperity materially, but that you would do whatever it is that you need to do in us, in our country, in this world to purify your people, to call others to yourself, to show us the futility of our own work that we may trust alone in Christ, I pray. That that would be more important to us than anything else. Thus, I pray that you would do it, that you would glorify yourself, that you would revive your work in us individually, in our church, in our community, in our country, throughout the world, we pray. Father, we know there are many who are suffering. Our hearts go to them. I can think of those in our midst for David Hartzler and the loss of his dad, for Eileen as she continues to fight cancer, for the White family as little Caden continues to hang on, for those who are suffering because of the economy with unemployment, for those who are finding relationships strained and difficult for those who have deep and besetting fears in their own lives, for those who feel lonely, for those who hurt because of the lostness of those they love. I pray, Father, that you would be gracious and compassionate, that you would be merciful to them, But in each situation, as in every situation we pray, that your glory would be seen, that your work would be known, that it would be their desire even as they suffer. It would be our desire even as as we suffer for you to be known and your work to be accomplished. Father, we pray that about our building situation. We lift that to you. Pray that your will would be done, that your glory would be seen and known even in a project like that. Help us, God, we pray, to be a people that lives by faith. Strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. The response to our benediction this morning is that Advent's response uh, throughout this Christmas season. Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. I remind you as well, there are elders available to pray in the, in the office area, so please take advantage of that. But please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ has come. Christ is coming again.
Hallelujah.